0: Chapter twenty seven of the Huguenot by George Payne Rainsford James. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter twenty seven The Pastor's Prison. The pillow of Clemence de Marly was wet with her tears, and sleep had not visited her eyes when a quick knocking was heard at her door, and she demanded timidly who was there. It is I, madam, replied the voice of the Duchess de Rouvray's maid. Then wait a moment, Mariette, replied Clémence, and I will open the door. She rose, put on a dressing-gown, and by the light of the lamp, which still stood unextinguished on the table, she raised and concealed in a small casket two letters which she had left open, and which bore evident signs of having been wept over before she retired to rest. The one was in the clear, free handwriting of youth and strength. The other was in characters, every line of which spoke the feeble hand of age, Infirmity or sickness. When that was done, she opened the door which was locked and admitted the Duchess's maid, who was followed into the room by her own attendant, Maria, who usually slept in a little chamber hard by. What is the matter, Mariette? demanded the young lady. I can scarcely say that I have closed my eyes ere I am again disturbed. I am sorry, mademoiselle, to alarm you, replied the woman but Maria would positively not wake you, so I was obliged to do it, for the duke was sent for just as he was going to bed, and after remaining for two hours with the king has returned, and given immediate orders to prepare for a long journey. The duchess sent me to let you know that such was the case, and that the carriages would be at the door in less than two hours. Do you know whither they are going? demanded Clémence, and if I am to accompany them? "'I know nothing from the duke or the duchess, mademoiselle,' replied the woman, "'but the duke's valet said that we were going either to Brittany or Poitou, "'for my lord had brought away a packet from the king addressed to somebody in those quarters. "'And you are going, certainly, mademoiselle, for the duchess told me to tell you so, "'and the valet says that it is on account of you we are going. "'For that the chevalier came back with my lord, the duke, "'and when he parted with him said, Tell Clémence she shall hear from me soon. Clémence mused, but made no answer, and when, in about an hour after, she descended to the saloon of the hotel, she found everything in the confusion of departure, and the Duke de Rouvray standing by the table at which his wife was seated, waiting for the moment of setting out, with a face wan, indeed, and somewhat anxious, but not so sorrowful or dejected as perhaps Clémence expected to see. "'I fear, my dear Duke,' she said, approaching him and leaning her two hands affectionately upon his arm, "'I fear that you, who have been to your poor Clémence a father indeed, are destined to have even more than a father's share of pains and anxieties with her. I am sure that all this to-night is owing to me, or to those that are dear to me, and that you have fallen under the King's displeasure on account of the rash steps of him whom I cannot yet cease to love.' "'Not at all, my sweet Clémence, not at all, my sweet child,' said the old nobleman, kissing her hand with that mingled air of gallant respect and affection which he always showed towards her. "'I do not mean to say that your fair self has nothing to do with this business in any way, but certainly not in that way. It is about another business altogether, Clémence, that we are ordered to retire from the court, but not in disgrace, my dear young friend. We are by no means in disgrace.' The King is perfectly satisfied that you have had no share in all the business of poor Albert of Morseilles, and when I told him how bitterly and deeply grieved you were, and how struck to the heart you seemed to have been when you heard that the Count had fled to join the rebels in Poitou, he told me to bid you console yourself, saying that he would find you another and a better husband soon. Clémence's eyes were bent down upon the ground with an expression of grief and pain, but she looked up in a moment and said, is it permitted me to ask you, my lord, how I am connected with this sudden removal? Nay, he said, nay, sweet Clémence, that I must not tell you. I scruple not to say that I think His Majesty is acting without due consideration. But, of course, my first duty, like that of all his other subjects, is to obey. And he particularly wishes that nothing should be said to you on the subject, as it might render one duty difficult by opposing to it another. At present, the whole matter is quite simple. We have nothing to do but to set out as soon as these villainous lackeys have got the carriages ready. Thus say, the Duke turned away, evidently wishing to avoid further inquiries, and in about half an hour after, Clémence was rolling away from Versailles with the Duke and Duchess de Rouvre, followed by a long train of carriages and attendants. It is needless to trace a melancholy journey in the darkest and gloomiest weather of the month of November, but it was evident that the Duc de Rouvray was in haste, travelling early and late, and it also appeared from his conversation as they went, that, though he was charged with no special mission from the king, he proposed only pausing for a short time in Poitou, and then bending his steps to some of his other estates. Indeed, he suffered it to be understood that, in all probability, for many months he should take but little repose, frequently changing his place of abode, and travelling from one city to another. Although the health of Madame de Rouvray was by no means vigorous, and though far and rapid travelling never at any time had agreed with her, she made no objection, but seemed contented and happy with the arrangement, and even suggested that a journey to Italy might be beneficial to them all. Clémence wondered, but was silent, and at length late on the afternoon of the sixth day after their departure, they arrived at the small town of Douar, over which was brooding the dark grey fogs of a November evening. Not many miles remained to travel from Douar to Rufini, and the Duke, who was of course well known in that part of the country, received visits of congratulation on his arrival from the principal offices and inhabitants of the town. At these visits, however, Clémence was not present. She sent down an excuse for not appearing during the evening, and when the Duke sent up to say he wished to see her for a moment, she was not to be found, nor had she indeed returned at the end of an hour. Where was Clémence de Marly? it may be asked? She was in the dark and gloomy abode, often of crime and often of innocence, but ever of anguish and sorrow. She was in the prison of the old chateau of Douar, not indeed as one of those unfortunate beings the involuntary inmates of the place but as one coming upon the sad and solemn errand of visiting a dear and well-beloved friend for the last time the office of governor of the prison as it was seldom if ever used for the confinement of state offenders had been suffered to fall into the hands of the mayor of the place who delegated his charge to an old lieutenant who again entrusted it to two subordinate jailers, antique and rusty in their office, as the keys they carried. It was with one of these that Clémence was speaking eagerly in the small dark passage that led into the interior of the building. She was habited in the ordinary grey cloak in which we have seen her twice before, and had with her still, on this occasion also, the faithful servant who had then attended her. "'Come, come, pretty mistress,' said the man, thrusting himself steadfastly in the way. "'I tell you, it is as much as my head is worth. He is condemned to be broken on the wheel to-morrow, and I dare admit nobody to him.' "'Look at these,' said Clémence, pouring some gold pieces from her purse into her open hand. "'I offer you these if you will allow me to speak with him for an hour, and if you refuse I shall certainly insist upon seeing the lieutenant of the governor himself.' You know what manner of man he is, and whether he will reject what I shall offer him. So he will get the money, and you will not, and I shall see the prisoner notwithstanding. The man's resolution was evidently shaken to the foundation. He was an old man, and fond of gold. The sight was pleasant to him, and putting forth his hand he lifted one piece between his finger and thumb, turned it over, and dropped it back again upon the others.' The sound completed what the touch had begun. "'Well,' he said at length, "'I do not see why he should get it, and not I. He is asleep, too, now in the armchair. So it were a pity to wake him. You want to be with the old man an hour, do you, young woman? Well, you must both go in, then. And I must go away, and be absent with the keys, for fear the lieutenant should wake and go to see the prisoner.' "'Do you mean to lock us in with him, then?' "'exclaimed the maid, in some terror. "'Fear not, Maria,' said her mistress. "'You who have ever given me encouragement and support must not fear now. "'There is God even here.' "'Be quick, then, and come along,' said the jailer. "'But first give me the money.' "'Clemence poured it into his hand, "'and when he had got it he paused, "'hesitating, as if he were tempted by the spirit of evil "'to keep the gold and refuse her admission.' But, if such were the case, a moment's reflection showed him that to attempt it would be ruinous, and he therefore led the way along the passage in which they were, putting his finger upon his lips to enjoin silence, as they passed by a part of the prison, which seemed to be inhabited by those who had some means of obtaining luxuries. At length, however, he lowered a lantern which he carried, and pointed to two or three steps which led into another passage, narrower, damper, and colder than the former. At the distance of about fifty feet from the steps this corridor was crossed by another, and turning to the right over a rough, uneven flooring of earth, with the faint light of the lantern gleaming here and there on the damp, green, glistening mould of the walls, he walked on till they reached the end, and then opened a low, heavy door. All within was dark, and as the man drew back to let his female companions pass, the attendant, Maria, laid her hand upon the lantern, saying, "'Give us a light, at least.' Oh, well, you may have it,' grumbled forth the jailer, "'and Clémence, who, though resolute to her purpose, "'still felt the natural fears of her sex and situation, "'turned to him, saying, "'I give you three more of those pieces "'when you open the door again for me.' "'Oh, I'll do that, I'll do that,' replied the man, "'quickened by the gold. "'And while Maria took the lantern and passed the door,' Clémence gazed down the step or two that had led into the dungeon, and then, with a pale cheek and wrung heart, followed. The door closed behind them, the harsh bolt of the lock grated as the man turned the key, and the power of retreat being at an end, the beautiful girl threw back the hood of the cloak, and gazed on before her into the obscure vault, which the feeble light of the lantern had scarcely deprived of any part of its darkness.' The only thing that she could perceive, at first, was a large, heavy pillar in the midst, supporting the pointed vault of the dungeon, with the faint outline of a low, wooden bed, with a the head thereof resting against the column. No one spoke, and nothing but a faint moan broke the awful silence. It required the pause of a moment or two, ere Clémence could overcome the feelings of her own heart, sufficiently, to take the lantern and advance. Opening a part of the dim horn as she did so in order to give greater light, a step or two farther forward brought her to the side of the bed, and the light of the lantern now showed her distinctly the venerable form of Claude de Lestang, stretched out upon the straw with which the pallet was filled. A heavy chain was round his middle, and the farther end thereof was fastened to a stanchion in the column. The minister was dressed in a loose grey prison gown, and although he saw the approach of someone in the abode of misery in which he was placed, he moved not at all, but remained with his arm bent under his head. His eyes turned slightly towards the door, his lower lip dropping as if with debility or pain, and his whole attitude displaying the utter lassitude and apathy of exhaustion and despair. When Clémence was within a foot or two of his side, however, he slowly raised his eyes towards her, and in a moment, when he beheld her face, a bright gleam came over his faded countenance, awakening in it all those peculiar signs and marks of strong intellect and intense feeling which the moment before had seemed extinct and gone. It was like the lightning flashing over some noble ruin in the midst of the deep darkness of the night. Is it you, my sweet child? he cried in a faint voice that was scarcely audible, even in the midst of the still silence? Is it you that have come to visit me in this abode of wretchedness and agony? This is indeed a blessing and a comfort, a blessing to see that there are some faithful even to the last, a comfort and a joy to find that she on whose truth and steadfastness I have fixed such hopes has not deceived me. And yet, he exclaimed, while Clémence gazed upon him, with the tears rolling rapidly, over her cheeks and the sobs struggling hard for utterance and yet why oh why have you come here why have you risked so much my child to soothe the few short hours that to-morrow's noon shall see at an end oh dear friend said clemence kneeling down beside the pallet could i do otherwise when i was in this very town than strive to see you my guide my instructor my teacher in right my warner of the path that I ought to shun, should I do otherwise when I thought that there was none to soothe, that there was none to console you, that in the darkness and the agony of these awful hours there was not one voice to speak comfort or to say one word of sympathy? "'My child, you are mistaken,' replied the old man, striving to raise himself upon his arm and sinking back again with a low groan. "'There has been one to comfort,' There has been one to support me. He, to whom I go, has never abandoned me, neither in the midst of insult and degradation, no, nor in the moment of agony and torture, nor in those long and weary hours that have passed since they bore these ancient limbs from the rack on which they have bound them, and cast them down here to endure the time in darkness, in pain, and in utter helplessness, till at noon tomorrow the work will be accomplished on the bloody wheel, "'and the prisoner in this ruined clay "'will receive a joyful summons "'to fly far to his Redeemer's throne.' "'The tears rained down from the eyes of Clémence de Marly "'like the drops of a summer shower, "'but she dared not trust herself to speak, "'and after pausing to take breath, "'which came evidently with difficulty, "'the old man went on. "'But still I say, Clémence, still I say, "'why have you come hither? "'You know not the danger, "'you know not the peril in which you are.' "'What?' cried Clémence. "'Should I fear danger? "'Should I fear peril in such a case as this? "'Let them do to me what they will. "'Let them do to me what God permits them to do. "'To have knelt here beside you, "'to have spoken one word of comfort to you, "'to have wiped the drops from that venerable brow "'in this awful moment, "'would be a sufficient recompense to Clémence de Marly "'for all that she could suffer.' "'God forbid,' cried the pastor, "'that they should make you suffer as they can.' You know not what it is, my child, you know not what it is. If it were possible that an immortal spirit, armed with God's truth, should consent unto a lie, that torture might well produce so awful a falling off. But you recall me, my child, to what I was saying. I have not been alone, I have not been uncomforted even here. The word of God has been with me, in my heart. The spirit of God has sustained my spirit, The sufferings of my Saviour have drowned my sufferings. The hope of immortality has made me bear the utmost pains of earth. When they had taken away the printed words from before mine eyes, when they had shut out the light of heaven, so that I could not have seen even if the holy book had been left, they thought they had deprived me of my solace. But they forgot that every word thereof was in my heart, that it was written there with the bright memories of my early days that it was traced there with the calm recollections of my manhood, that it was printed there with sufferings and with tears, that it was graven there with smiles and joys, that with every act of my life and thought of my past being those words of the revealed will of God were mingled and never could be separated, and it came back to me even here and blessed me in the dungeon. It came back to me before the tribunal of my enemies and gave me a mouth and wisdom." It came back to me on the torturing-rack, and gave me strength to endure without a groan. It came back to me even as I was lying mangled here, and made the wheel of to-morrow seem a blessed resting-place. "'Alas, alas!' cried Clémence. "'When I see you there, when I see you thus suffering, when I see you thus the sport of cruelty and persecution, I feel that I have judged too harshly of poor Albert in regard to his taking arms against the oppressors.' I feel that perhaps, like him, I should have thus acted, even though I called the charge of ingratitude upon my head. "'And is he free, then? Is he free?' demanded the pastor eagerly. "'He is free,' replied Clémence, "'and, as we hear, in arms against the king.' "'Oh, entreat him to lay them down!' exclaimed the pastor. "'Beseech him not to attempt it. "'Tell him that ruin and death can be the only consequences.' Tell him that the Protestant Church is at an end in France. Tell him that flight to lands where the pure faith is known and loved is the only hope. Tell him that resistance is destruction to him and to all others. Tell him so, my child. Tell him so from me. Tell him so. But hark, he continued. What awful sound is that? For even while he was speaking, and apparently close to the spot where the dungeon was situated. A sharp explosion took place, followed by a multitude of heavy blows, given with the most extraordinary rapidity. No voices were distinguished for some minutes, and the blows continued without a moment's cessation, thundering one upon the other, with a vehemence and force which seemed to shake the whole building. "'It is surely,' said Clémence, "'somebody attacking the prison door. "'Perhaps, oh heaven, perhaps it is someone trying to deliver you.' "'Heaven forbid!' exclaimed the old man. "'Heaven forbid that they should madly rush to such an attempt for the purpose of saving, for a few short hours, this wretched frame from that death which will be a relief! Hark! Do you not hear cries and shouts?' Clémence listened, and she distinctly heard many voices, apparently elevated, but at a distance, while the sound of the blows continued thundering upon what was evidently the door of the prison— and a low murmur, as if of persons speaking round, joined with the space to make the farther cries indistinct. A pause succeeded for a moment or two, but then came the sound of galloping horse, and then a sharp discharge of musketry, instantly followed by the loud report of firearms, from a spot immediately adjacent to the building. Claymores clasped her hands in terror, while her attendant Maria, filled with the dangerous situation in which they were placed, ran and pushed the door of the dungeon, idly endeavouring to force it open. In the meanwhile, for two or three minutes, nothing was heard but shouts and cries, with two or three musket shots. Then came a volley, then another, then two or three more shots, then the charging of horse mingled with cries and shouts and screams, while still the thundering blows continued, and at length a loud and tremendous crash was heard shaking the whole building. A momentary pause succeeded, the blows were no longer heard, and the next sound was the rash of many feet. A moment of doubt and apprehension, of anxiety, nay, of terror, followed. Clémence was joyful at the thought of the pastor's deliverance, but what, she asked herself, was to be her own fate, even if the purpose of those who approached was the good man's liberation. Another volley from without broke in upon the other sounds, but in an instant after, The rushing of the feet approached the door where they were, and manifold voices were heard speaking. "'It is locked,' cried one. "'Where can the villain be with the keys?' "'Get back,' cried another loud voice. "'Give me but a fair stroke at it.' A blow like thunder followed, and, seeming to fall upon the locks and bolts of the door, dashed them at once to pieces, driving a part of the woodwork into the dungeon itself. Two more blows cast the whole mass wrenched from its hinges to the ground. A multitude of people rushed in, some of them bearing lights, all armed to the teeth, some bloody, some begrimed with smoke and gunpowder, fierce excitement flashing from every eye and eager energy upon every face. "'Here he is! Here he is!' they shouted to the others without. "'Make way! Make way! Let us bring him out!' "'But who are these women?' cried another voice. "'Friends, friends, dear friends, come to comfort me,' cried the pastor. "'Blessings on the tongue that so often has taught us,' cried other voices, while several ran forward and kissed his hands with tears. "'Blessings on the heart that has guided and directed us.' "'Stand back, my friends, stand back,' cried a gigantic man with an immense sledgehammer in his hand. "'Let me break the chain.' And at a single blow he dashed the strong links to atoms.' "'Now bring them all along,' he cried. "'Now bring them all along. "'Take up the good man on the bed and carry him out. "'Bring them all along. "'Bring them all along,' cried a thousand voices, "'and without being listened to in anything that she had to say, "'Clemence, clinging as closely as she could to her attendant, "'was hurried out along the narrow passages of the prison, "'which were now flashing with manifold lights, "'into the dark little square which was found filled with people.' Multitudes of lights were in all the windows round, and covering the prison, a strong band of men were drawn up facing the opposite street. A number of persons on horseback were in front of the band, and, by the lights which were flashing from the torches in the street, one commanding figure appeared to the eyes of Clémence at the very moment she was brought forth from the doors of the prison, stretching out his hands towards the men behind him and shouting in a voice that she could never forget, though now that a voice was raised into tones of loud command such as she had never heard it use, hold hold the man that fires a shot dies not one unnecessary shot not one unnecessary blow clémence strove to turn that way and to fly towards the hotel where monsieur de rouvray lodged but she was borne away by the stream which seemed to be now retreating from the town at the same moment an armed man laid gently hold of her cloak "'seeing her efforts to free herself, and said, "'This way, lady, this way. "'It is madness for you to think to go back now. "'You are with friends. "'You are with one who will protect you with his life, "'for your kindness to the murdered and the lost.' "'She turned round to gaze upon him, not recollecting his voice, "'and his face in the indistinct light seemed to her "'like a face remembered in a dream, "'connected with the awful scene of the preaching on the moor and the dark piece of water, and the dying girl killed by the shot of the dragoons. Ere she could ask any questions, however, the stream of people hurried her on, and in a few minutes she was out of Tuar, and in the midst of the open country round. End of chapter twenty-seven